And so it is now my great pleasure to hand over to the Standard Bank Group Chief Economist, Ulam Balem, for an expert analysis of Africa's prospects during and after the pandemic. Ulam, my friend, over to you. Tim, thank you for those introductory remarks, for hosting this occasion and always in your elegant, pleasant way, welcoming our clients. Um, it's a celebration that amid the lockdown related um, nature of our lives that we could still assemble such a vast number of clients who would show interest in African affairs. And of course, in the ensuing days, we'll be well aware of the numerous policymakers, for instance, who continue to join us and will add color to this um, virtual gathering. Um, in preparation for this uh, presentation, I privately suggested to myself, I would try not to use some phrases, some words that uh, have really defined the last couple of months and which probably are very well worn by now, such as unprecedented, such as the new normal, everything's changed and perhaps epicenter. Um, we seem to have a large number of epicenters um, in various places for various reasons. But I'm sure um, my discourse over the next 30, mi 30 minutes or so will still be peppered with, uh, with those words. Nonetheless, over the next 30 minutes or so, what I'd like to do is set the scene for the next couple of days. What I'd like to do over four installments is give you some sense of Africa's GDP performance on socioeconomic performance over the last two decades. I think it's relevant to the extent that it suggests what's at stake. It suggests what Africa can forsake and what it can forsake is quite remarkable, um, which I will amplify on in a moment. The second element of my presentation is to focus on COVID-19 and the extent to which it has landed on the continent. And I'll just make some supplementary remarks with respect to existing vulnerabilities, admittedly with one vulnerability in particular. The third installment of my visit with you is to highlight or at least give you some sense of our prognosis on GDP and also highlighting the various transmission mechanisms that uh, the dent to GDP this year will transmit through. And then lastly, deal with the responses that have been forthcoming with respect to this exogenous shock from both the public and the private sectors. So without further ado, what I'm going to do is enlist the help of some theater. So I'm calling up um, a presentation and I hope I will be able to summon it uh, with great ease um, and that ease has suddenly been <laughs> somewhat constrained. Um, bear with me, bear with me. I'm trying to find the presentation and hope that it surfaces. So I'm guessing you can see what looks like Sub-Saharan Africa amid COVID-19. Um, so I'm going to move on from the heading and dive straight into the first exhibit. So by now what you should be looking at is quite simply gross domestic product over the last two quarters. Um, seemingly 
very simple and unattractive exhibit. But I think there are a few very potent messages in this exhibit. And the first I would argue is that during the global financial crisis, you will notice how African GDP nearly hit a speed bump, whereas at least 60, probably 70% of the GDP producing world fell into recession. The African economy, Sub-Saharan Africa as a region, nearly stuttered. And that was symptomatic of the increasing attachments to Asia and particularly China, so-called South-South Cords. So no doubt trading relationships with Asia have ballooned over the last two decades. In fact, we go so far as to suggest that today Africa's trade with the BRIC nations surpasses that of trade with the G7. And so that explained why the GFC was relatively mild compared to the dent to most other parts of the world and even other emerging market economies. But there's also the reflection more laterally in the middle of the last decade when the continent and the region stumbled a little bit more perceptibly. And of course, that coincided with the commodity shock, the Chinese shock, internal commodity shock, and that transmitted more menacingly to sub-Saharan Africa. I sometimes and lightheartedly would suggest that China is sub-Saharan Africa's subprime crisis. In other words, it's that umbilical cord which weighs heavily. Um, that notwithstanding, it does appear that 2020 is going to bring quite a heavy guillotine down on growth um, and rendering a generally widespread recession. But what I also wanted to highlight in looking and viewing this exhibit, and which is not that obvious, is the enormous social welfare gains that have been made over the last 20 to 30 years. And just to list a few rather hurriedly, poverty has declined by roughly one percentage point per year over the last two decades, falling from around 60% to close to 40%. Still high, but it is falling meaningfully to the extent that GDP growth at around 5% has surpassed population growth. We also know, for instance, in the area of healthcare, there have been vast improvements. One metric of celebration is child mortality, having fallen from around 17% to around 7% more recently. And of course, that echoes other gains with regard to, say, tuberculosis, HIV AIDS, and even malaria. Another cause for cheer is quite simply the number of kids, the number of children that attend primary school and high school. Uh, that has risen to around three quarters, still shy of a wholehearted ambition of all kids, but three quarters of young children now attend primary school. That's up from 50% 25 years ago. Even girl children participation at school has improved markedly. I'll round up this, just the suggestions surrounding the gains over the last two decades by mentioning 25 years ago, 27 years ago, there were less than a handful of democracies. And of course, that has swelled so much more, more laterally. And then with that, I think it's useful to just go into the next exhibit. And while I've been quite cheerful thus far surrounding African growth, I think it's necessary that we at least bucket the African nations into at least three categories, because clearly there is some level of divergence. So the exhibit you're looking at now gives you some sense, for example, with regards to the oil economies. What we can clearly see is that oil economy growth has been volatile, but also has been on a descending channel over the last few decades. So lower highs, lower lows. And of course, we'll probably outperform in a negative sense, the other pooled economies 
um, in 2020. If you look at the non-oil but still resource-rich economies line in this particular exhibit, and that's the gray line, it also gives you some sense of the volatility, not as piercing as that of oil economies, certainly less, but also some volatility, but a more enduringly lively growth from these economies. But the celebration with regards to this exhibit is the non-oil economies, largely located along the eastern shores of the continent, East Africa, even Mozambique, while it has enormous promise in terms of gases, is still regarded as a non-resources economy. Uh, on a lighter note, I sometimes refer to Mozambique as an elephant pregnant, forgive me, as a mouse pregnant with an elephant, given the gas riches promise. But that's for the near to medium term future. And you can clearly see those economies, non-oil, non-resources economies have been notably more resilient. And I think it will be the case again in 2020, where East Africa shows relatively less growth shock compared to the other zones. But as I said, the second installment of my presentation is to talk to you about the plague and to give you some sense of the manner in which uh, this has unraveled across the continent. So the exhibit you're looking at is something that some of you may have seen and something that I exhibited previously as well, but I think it just gives you a good glimpse of the manner in which the pandemic has in fact quite literally traveled around the world. And it gives you some sense that April was perhaps the really blowtorch period for much of the developed world, given the absolute swell in the number of daily cases before turning and beginning to abate somewhat. But this whole exhibit also gives you some sense in the way Latin America, for instance, is two to three months behind the developed world in terms of the piercing nature of this disease. And then the third little ring that I've just called up there gives you Africa. Uh, and clearly, nominally, absolutely, infin infinitely small, seemingly, relative to the extent to which COVID-19 has featured in the rest of the world. Now, I think it's safe to say that there aren't any true experts with regard to COVID-19. But what some of the epidemiologists tell us is that the area under the curve is the area under the curve. So whether you have a curve that is skinny and tall or a curve that is flat and extended, the area under the curve is the area under the curve, suggesting that the number of people that are likely to become infected will be the, the same, irrespective of the rate of transmission um, over time. In other words, early low r noughts uh, may simply extend the extent to which it dissipates um, through a community, but eventually you will get that level of more wider um, degree of, of impact. And with that, just to then turn to the prevalence of COVID-19 on the continent. Now, the exhibit you're looking at now, this map does give you some hints of, of COVID-19. And what jumps out at you is, particularly if you're looking at it from European shores, from American shores, from Northern Hemisphere shores, is the low nominal number of infections across the continent. Of course, South Africa stands out approaching 100,000 infections in total. Um, Egypt also stands out in that respect and Nigeria seems to be, I was about to use the word blossoming, but that would be too romantic a notion for the dreaded nature of the disease. But clearly the swell is beginning to take hold. And in fact, in South Africa, just as, a, as an instance, despite 
South Africa having had a very aggressive early response in terms of a lockdown. Recall the first measured case of COVID-19 in South Africa was on March the 5th and by March the 27th the president announced a national lockdown that would be eventually extended for at least five weeks in a fairly draconian fashion. But that notwithstanding, notwithstanding that early lockdown and also since then a very vibrant sense of non-medicinal measures at containing the disease. South Africa is now approaching four to five thousand new daily infections and also with that an exponential rise in deaths. Now the exhibit that you'll be looking at now is the fatality landscape. Admittedly both with measured incidents of COVID-19 and the death rates, we can safely say that there is undercounting. Um, but I don't think it is as pronounced as, as the case um, with regards to, um, so, so it is certainly undercount, but I don't think it is meaningfully uh, uh, low relative to the true state in many markets. But as you can see, the swell in South Africa approaching around 2000, uh, it's, it's surpassed South Africa in Egypt. You may recall from the earlier exhibit, Egypt had 55,000 cumulative instances of COVID-19, so roughly half that of South Africa but just about the same or slightly ahead of South Africa in terms of fatalities. And I think that audit to some degree speaks to perhaps demography, but also um, differences in accounting or rather the shortcomings in accounting. So COVID, I guess if I were to be glib, I would say at worst, the continent, the region is two to three months behind the Western world behind Europe in terms of a more profound proliferation of COVID-19. But that having been said, it has also been suggested that one of the reasons you've had a slower rate of transmission across the continent is quite simply related to its more youthful demographic. So this exhibit clearly gives you a sense of Africa's relatively youth distribution in terms of its population. Slightly more than half qualify within that narrower definition of youth within the real, within the, the less than 20 years of, of age. In fact, a little less than 5% of Africa's population is, is, is over 60 years of age. And so with a median age of around 19 in Sub-Saharan Africa, it's more than 30 in Asia, it's about 42, 43 in Europe. That low median age can potentially speak to a greater level of fortification in terms of COVID-19. Uh, and that youthfulness at least from what we understand in these early days of COVID-19, is that there is lower level of transmission amongst younger people, and younger people tend to be relatively immune to the harshness of the disease. Um, and to that extent, uh, as I suggested, it may provide some degree of very meaningful fortification and to some degree may also explain why the level of R0 has been low, the level of transmission has been fairly low on the continent thus far. I also mentioned that in this installment I'll talk about vulnerabilities that predated COVID-19 and the one that I specifically want to talk about and is one that we will engage with more piercingly as we talk to policymakers over the next couple of days is public sector indebtedness. So if you look at this particular exhibit you notice how for example 
oil exporters interest service payments, debt service payments as a proportion of revenues has surged almost fivefold in just a decade, from around 4% as a share of revenues to roughly 20%. Uh, with regard to sub-Saharan Africa more generally, it's doubled in just a space of a decade. And of course, the hit to GDP, the hit to the denominator only swells the debt metrics so much more. And of course, GDP, in itself to the extent that it is either going to be in decline or outright contraction will speak to diminished revenues flowing to the state. And that's over and above the fact that some levels of tax relief have been afforded by some regimes. So the overall debt metrics are going to look incredibly unattractive over the near, over the near to medium term, speaking to heightening levels of debt service vulnerability, particularly in the abs absence of the inability to gain access to foreign capital markets. And just rounding up this thesis very, very quickly, this exhibit gives you some sense of the planned issuance this year and the redemptions in the subsequent years on a slightly um, com more comforting note in the immediate near term, the immediate near years, redemptions are relatively low compared to the pickup more in the midpoint of this decade. But it'll be incredibly hard for that planned issuance to, to take off this year. As a side, what we do note is that while it may be difficult for sovereigns to be, you know, increasingly entering the eurobond market uh, with with much ease or at least relative ease as they have in the recent past we do note that foreign interest outside of africa interest for african corporate bonds has seemingly been healthy so early indications are that some of that flow that otherwise would have traveled to sovereigns may find itself um, filling some finding void, uh, that void being being planned potentially with regard to corporate issuance. And of course, the nature of the conference which we're hosting will involve engagements with a number of African corporates who obviously participate in hard currency debt markets. So now turning to the third installment, and yeah, I won't linger at great length, the impact on GDP. And yeah, we've profiled it in various buckets. On the extreme left, is sub-Saharan Africa. And just to give you some sense of how to interpret this exhibit, so that green turquoise bar represents 2019 GDP. So we anticipated or at least estimate that GDP last year was 2.9%. The star in that particular column reflects the consensus GDP growth for 2020 as it would have been in January. So quite clearly expectations were around 4% GDP growth for 2020 in terms of the market vibe. More recently, and quite clearly as a function of the piercing nature of the disease, we're looking at a 4% contraction in sub-Saharan Africa GDP this calendar year. And if we distribute it to the various pools of economies, um, the oil exporters are menacingly hit. So if you look and you were to judge the switch from the earlier expectations of roughly 2.5% GDP growth for the oil exporters all the way to a contraction of minus 6% speaks to an 8.5 percentage point switch in terms of the consensus expectations. Mammoth in this is where I would choose to use the word unprecedented. Um, 
the non-oil but still resource-rich economies also experiencing a meaningful shift from earlier consensus and also re relative to 2019 GDP expectations. The non-resource intensive economies, and here again we make note of East Africa, these would seem to potentially have on the cards the least relative hit to their GDP and early indications uh, with regards to say the Kenyan economy or even the Ugandan economy uh, that this can come to pass but we may see a smidgen of positive growth during 2020 from these nations and then just bucketing those tourist dependent economies and really in this particular instance we highlight those acutely monopoly resource uh, tourist dependent economies and at the bottom of this particular exhibit I've highlighted the economies that we're referencing just uh, for the fullness of it and as you can see um, these economies are on course for a more than 10 percentage point switch in growth relative to January expectations for the unfolding year. The channels of transmission are numerous. I'm going to list several of them in this particular exhibit, but I'm not going to be dwelling on them at great length. But just to highlight a few, or at least to provide cursory thoughts on a few. So an aggregate demand shock mating with a supply shock. This really is the nature of COVID-19 to the extent that it is going to harm the export dynamic of the African continent. We estimate that the total damage to sub-Saharan Africa GDP can probably be divided more comprehensively into, into three parts. The first would be the damage from weaker export markets and the interruption to supply chains. And we think that will account for about a third of the overall damage to GDP. The second element of dent would come from dormant local markets. So shutting down local markets, whether it is a state of emergency in Namibia, a state of disaster in South Africa, curfews in Nairobi and Uganda and South Africa. These local responses we think will account for about half of the total subtraction. To GDP and then the remaining roughly 15% in an aggregated sub-Saharan Africa perspective will emanate from weakness in the oil economies, Nigeria and Angola, um, which are substantial economies in their own right, Nigeria being larger than South Africa in GDP, Angola being about a third the size of South Africa's economy, GDP measure, of course, as I've just highlighted. So that those economies and other oil economies weakness will, as I say, account for perhaps about 15% of the overall sub-Saharan Africa damage. Um, financial instability would potentially have been another risk to markets, but central banks have acted very, very quickly in attempting to prevent what was an exogenous shock denting local demand, but at the same time morphing into a, a balance sheet shock for banks, for example. We anticipate a reduction in foreign direct investment. And already, for example, if you look at a market like Nigeria, we've seen that foreign portfolio flows into a foreign holding of Nigerian financial assets has declined by more than 40% this year so far as a function of COVID-19. And of course, the real economy investments too uh, will also be dented in due course. We think lower productivity, schools closure, of course, is, is damaging. 
And the reason I listed schools closure and linking to my very opening remarks where I said to you that it has been a Culean in the games that we've been able to enjoy with just simply kids attending school. One of the worries we, we have, particularly as a bank operating in many African markets, is that if schools are locked down, closed for an enduring period of time, it may be the case that some kids just don't return to school. Um, and of course, that's travesty, not only to the extent that it's a human capital dent, but what we do note also is that increasingly kids entering school, young girls entering school, has lowered the fertility rate across the continent. So there's multiple other positive externalities that are born out of school participation that we would worry about ordinarily in terms of medium term growth. Reduced tax, I mentioned it earlier on, so I won't linger at great length, just to say 20 years ago, the average tax take to GDP was around 18% tax as a ratio of GDP. It has climbed to 22, 23% of GDP in some markets and it's likely to subside over the near term, reduce liquidity and liquidity constraints were a feature in many markets even prior to COVID-19. Reduced household income, I mentioned that as a very significant feature accounting for about half of it. Um, crime, quite simply, because in the manner in which in many European markets the debate has revolved between lives and livelihoods and the switching on of economies was to enable livelihoods to, to not be pressed in many African markets, particularly because of the extent of poverty. It was not just a case of lives versus livelihoods, but lives versus lives. And by that I mean lives at threat from COVID-19 and measures to protect lives from the disease, but also with economies shutting down, poverty levels increasing, malnutrition increasing. People with chronic illnesses like tuberculosis unable to get to hospitals because hospitals are now gearing up for COVID-19 and they can't get their medication. People who contract tuberculosis can't get to being tested. So suddenly their lives are at risk. So there's a complexity and a nuance to the African markets as well um, that, I, that I mentioned. Currency devaluations, of course, with all that capital excite, which of course stokes inflation risks over the near to medium term. Um, credit downgrades are brought to the fore and commodity prices. So if you haven't already slit your wrists after this long list, then I felt hopelessly to do so. But I guess there is also room for some degree of, of optimism, some degree of structural reforms that may be born out of this, some degree of policy sanity where it has been less obvious or where there's been policy inertia in some markets. So let me talk a little bit about the responses. The responses have been diverse and and accumulating over many phases. But that is something that you would be well familiar with in your markets. And in fact, many of the responses that I'm going to list here will find resonance with what you have lived through in your local domiciles. So monetary easing. And in this respect, many African markets have got more to offer than any developed market. What do I mean by this is obviously African markets are not functioning near the zero bound. So the capacity to lower rates as a cushion, clearly not a silver bullet, but to as a meaningful source of, my, uh, of, of stabilization has been swiftly enacted, whether it is in South Africa where rates are at lows, unfamiliar to mo many a modern practitioner. Uganda, for example, has front loaded rates um, cuts as well and, and in many other markets as well. And so the need for say more exotic quantitative easing or other what some would refer as unorthodox 
policy measures after a decade, they're probably the orthodoxy rather than unorthodox. But monetary policy has been a meaningful instrument. And, and as I say, more in interest rate cuts, the depth of it then has been prevalent in, in developed markets for obvious reasons. But fiscal stimulus is where the markets fall short. And typically two to three, sometimes 4% of GDP in the extent of fiscal stimulus. But sometimes there's also had to be creativity. In other words, bank loan guarantees as part of the overall stabilization package have been the order of the day. And just to maybe give you one case study very quickly in South Africa, despite a headline suggestion of 500 billion rand worth of fiscal stimulus, equivalent to around 5% of GDP, but in baked into that particular package was approximately 200 billion rand of suggested uh, bank guarantees, which have started to get over the ground. So there have had to be other transmission mechanisms, admittedly, under the faux headline of fiscal responses that have been to be incorporated into African responses, quite simply because of the initial and ongoing precariousness of fiscal health. DFIs have come to the fore and have had to come to the fore and the African Development Bank with multi-billion rand facility and over $3 billion has been also to the forefront. Reliance on the IMF have also helped to bolster reserve. We've seen, for example, in Nigeria after reserve has fallen precipitously in recent months, um, IMF, RFI money have helped to more recently bolster reserves. And, and of course, that, that is being replicated in a variety of markets. Big business and philanthropic organizations have come to the fore very vibrantly. So whether it is Alika Dengoti and the Nigerian Business Forum that have been active in providing a private sector response in concert with the state or business for South Africa in South Africa that have uh, been co-opted as part of a meaningful response, that degree of endeavor has been meaningful. Solidarity funds, I'm crudely going to refer to it as crowdfunding. These have also been a feature of African markets. Banks have been at the forefront and the way central banks, the way monetary authorities, banks have also looked to their GFC playbook and have been far more quicker in actioning on items that were part of that era's response only with, of course, swifter resolve on this occasion. It, perhaps I'm fiddling with this particular remark. Some firms have refocused on, on, on production items or so apparel firms, switching to PPE, switching to mass making and so forth. There's been some degree of innovation to be able to skew um, local production. But of course, this has been in the realm of a rounding error. It hasn't been sufficient. But at the outset, I mentioned it, we've gone through a phased dynamic and by a phased dynamic, early stabilization, lockdowns, lives in preference to livelihoods, to put it crudely. More latterly, a recognition quite simply and perhaps not a very vocalized sense of appreciation that the market economy is unsurpassed in its capacity to create jobs, in its capacity to generate incomes. And I think there are very few markets anywhere that are going to revert to the type of national heart lockdowns that may have been the feature of um, society, societies in the March-April period. Now perhaps more hotspot focused, but with a heightened emphasis on non-medicinal interventions to not fully 
believe that the disease can be carved out of a particular society, but for effectively suppressing the rate of community transmission will probably become the mainstay mechanism of Africa's um, engagement with COVID-19 over the near to, to near to medium term. But with the remark that I've just uh, engaged on this particular slide, it's to highlight quite simply, whereas public policy dominated at the outset, autocratic instructions from the state on how society must organize themselves, what I refer to as the top-down approach, has in fact evolved to a situation where it's more bottom-up right now. In other words, the devolution of protocols, or at least protocols born out of corporates and businesses, um, giving, uh, suggesting to government that this is how they would operate and this bottom-up approach has therefore allowed in many markets for a switch on from harsher levels of containment to relatively less harsh levels of, of lockdown, quite simply, as I say, because of a more constructive bottom-up microeconomic firm level um, response with their protocols rather than necessarily simply um, subscribing to state-led initiatives and I think that's that that has been the most meaningful evolution uh, over the near to over the recent past um, in some of the markets that have been played relatively easier uh, relatively relatively more substantially and so to to bring to conclusion my my final remarks um, COVID-19 quite clearly will be menacing for the continent in a in a manifest way um, to some degree and we, I say this with, with empathy, the evidence of its potential menace in nations such as Spain and Italy and its graphic nature perhaps heralded the early lockdowns, the preemptive shutdowns by many African nations and therefore allowed for an an occasion not to necessarily ready their health, their health systems, but to be able to plan for the non-medicinal interventions. And I highlight there's just so much of readiness that could have been enacted. So for example, if you look at a typical sub-Saharan African country, it has 25 doctors for every 100,000 population. And that contrasts with 300 doctors for every 100,000 citizens in an OECD uh, and economy. And it is similarly dire with regard to, for example, ICU beds. And if you look at a nation such as Uganda, it has one ICU bed for every one million people, compared to roughly 350 for the same measure in the United States. So the capacity to ramp up and to be able to anticipate and prepare for it was 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 going to require simply such a Herculean leap that it was was not possible. That notwithstanding. Um, we would argue that while there was much celebration of the re-emergence of the state in as a function of COVID-19 and potentially the dominance of the state in ensuing quarters and years, our sense is that that will prove fleeting in many African economies. If anything, rather than heightened state involvement, what we've seen during the current episode is simply that it highlights the state in many markets has the capacity to, to distribute funding to the poor. It is piped to the poor. It has channels of distributing aid to the poor more than necessarily um, the formal economy or even the form informal economy. And 
as I said, the perhaps less subtle recognition of the private sector's role in its ability to generate jobs and incomes is increasingly beginning to emerge. And I think um, that will dominate. Related to that, our sense is that in a variety of markets, and this is so evident in Kenya, it's increasingly evident in South Africa, for instance, where you are being crowded in the private sector is being crowded in quite simply because of the fiscal sparseness of of the of public of government's coffers and quite simply with more strained public finances with the balance sheet a monopoly now residing in the private sector the crowding in of the private sector to deliver on public sector goods on public goods um, will probably increase and come more to the fore. And I think in the realm of reform, and not to overstay my welcome, the remark that I will just make now is that state ownership in particular utilities, such as airlines, and despite even in South Africa, and maybe in Ethiopia, concerns that the state will continue to dominate these areas may invite the more harsh glare of the markets in due course, simply because of unaffordability. I have more to say, but I won't. I'm going to hand back to Sim, and just my very last remark is to say there are numerous engagements that we are going to host over the ensuing hours and days with policymakers. We will be to flesh out these themes in even more substantive measure. I am going to stop um, sharing now, or at least I'm going to try to stop sharing. Uh, but in the meantime, I am going to hand over to Sim. Many, many thanks, Kulam. Uh, that was a tour de force, as we've come to expect from you. Thank you very much. Uh, undoubtedly.